Uh, I'm a historian of the British imperial world, and I, from afar, from the United States, I've tried to keep uh, a close eye on uh, contemporary controversies in Britain that have some resonance with the imperial past. And some examples include the um, Roads Must Go campaign in Oxford a few years ago, um, the uh, scandal over the hidden documents in Hanslope Park uh, that uh, had uh, been deposited after uh, the withdrawal from various colonial territories, and, and one of my favorites, uh, the tweet by the conservative MP uh, Heather Wheeler during the, 19, uh, the 2016 Olympics that as she put it, the British Empire uh, was ahead of the rest of the world in the medal count. Uh, that, that one was particularly reassuring to me because it, it, it suggested that our president isn't the only politician who, who steps in it um, with, with tweets. Uh, so it was particularly intriguing for me um, to see how frequently uh, empire has been evoked uh, by proponents of Brexit, partly in the run-up to the, the um, referendum camp in, during the referendum campaign, but in particular in the immediate aftermath of, of the campaign and, and the vote in favor of Brexit. Well, I'm certainly, I'm going to stress, no expert in contemporary British politics, and I'm not the only person who's addressed this issue, and in fact, I'll make references to various people who have, including someone who's in this room. Uh, I believe that, that British imperial history can uh, provide a helpful frame of reference for making sense of the Brexiters' use of imperial rhetoric. So Brexit joined the EU, or rather the European Economic Community, uh, in 1973, which was right around the same time it pretty much had lost its empire. And I don't think there's an accident here. During the 1973 debate over entry into the EU, the, the labor leader, Hugh Gatskill, uh, remarked or warned that if Britain entered the EU, it would lose its empire, which is, I, I think, an interesting and revealing statement, but one that somehow, in some sense, reverses what the actual relationship was. It was actually the loss of empire, it seems to me, uh, that made entry into the EU particularly attractive for Britain. So the empire that Britain lost uh, was the largest and the most far-flung in history and it was a, an extraordinarily complex, diverse entity. And for that reason, I think it's important to differentiate among its various components to, to really sort of hone in on exactly uh, what strands of imperial rhetoric are being uh, deployed by, by pro-Brexit politicians. Uh, first, the British Empire was a political and economic hegemon that held sway uh, across the globe through informal and indirect means, such as control of trade routes, naval supremacy, technological superiority, and market dominance. Uh, Winston Churchill, and we can't go through a talk like this without quoting Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill in 1930 made this point in a speech. He said, we belong to no single continent, but to all. Not to one hemisphere, but to both. The British Empire is a leading European power. It is a great and growing American power. It is an Australasian power. It is one of the greatest Asiatic powers. It is a leading African power. It's sort of a very grand and grandiose uh, uh, statement here. Um, various commentators, I think, have rightly uh, read Theresa May's rhetoric about forging a global Britain 
uh, after Brexit and her declaration that Joseph Chamberlain was her political uh, hero as thinly veiled references to the idea of Britain that was really expressed by, by Churchill as this kind of global force, if you will. Then there's the Commonwealth, which is a, a very peculiar uh, international entity today, but it's, it's an institution that is derived uh, from uh, what had been component parts of, of the formal empire. Not all uh, colonial territories, but certainly a, a great many of them. And the International Trade Secretary and enthusiast for, for, for Brexit, uh, Liam Fox, his efforts to promote trade agreements uh, with member states of the Commonwealth were framed in terms of the argument that, that this could provide a, a, a far more greater, uh, far greater economic opportunities for Britain than did uh, membership in the EU. And uh, WAGs in the Foreign Office characterized Fox's proposal as Empire 2.0, as I'm sure many of you who are here know. Uh, Philip Murphy, who's here with us, um, has written a very lively new book on the Commonwealth called The Empire's New Clothes, The Myth of the Commonwealth. And he, he makes the point that there's really a problem with this project. And the problem is that the Commonwealth itself is really pretty much an ineffectual and largely meaningless institution today. It is, he observes, I quote, a bit like a grandfather clock that has been in the family for generations. It hasn't told the right time for decades but no one has the heart to take such a treasured heirloom to the tip. Now, for the most part, the Commonwealth actually originated historically as a way for Britain to retain its ties to what were otherwise referred to as the white dominions, such as Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, which by the early 20th century were largely self-governing and were serving as partners in this imperial project. So this is another important and very distinct dimension of what we can call broadly as the empire. And it's really this part of the empire that has attracted the greatest interest from leading Brexiteers. Uh, their wish fulfillment fantasy is to recreate this relationship, which they see as rooted basically in a shared ethnic identity and culture. And their, their uh, ambitions are, are couched in euphemisms like the Anglosphere, and CANZUC, which uh, is an acronym for Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. Um, advocates of one or the other of these ideas have included David Davis, uh, Michael Gove, uh, Nigel Farage, uh, Liam Fox, Boris Johnson, uh, Dan Hannon, and, and other prominent Brexiteers. So let's, I just want to briefly address each of these in turn. First of all, the Anglosphere, which um, can also be referred to, Churchill yeah, uh, referred to it as the English-speaking world, uh, was envisioned as not only an alliance with these white dominions, but also with the United States. Uh, there's a very good book by uh, Michael Kinney and Nick Pierce, Shadows of Empire, the Anglosphere in British Politics, which traces the history uh, and the reemergence of this idea. It is a deeply rooted idea, particularly arising in the late 19th century. Had a number of enthusiasts, in, including uh, people like Joseph Chamberlain uh, at the time. Uh, then it kind of died out, and it's clearly revived again, or it has recently. And they argue that Brexit's proponents believe that Britain's future lies outside Europe, and as they put it, um, involves the resumption of alliances based on deep cultural affinities uh, with other 
English-speaking countries. They also note that the Anglosphere is, as I put it, intertwined with a growing sense of English national consciousness. So the other dimension of this is on the one hand an alliance with these other sort of uh, so-called white countries. On the other hand, um, sort of a, a, an increasing divorce with uh, other parts of the United Kingdom. Um, very little interest of, for the idea of the Anglosphere in Scotland or in Northern Ireland, both territories which, of course, which happened to vote against uh, Brexit. Uh, closely related to the idea of the Anglosphere is the vision of Kanzuk, and the difference here primarily lies in the fact that the U.S. isn't included in that. Uh, Duncan Bell and, and, and others have, have uh, done uh, some, some very interesting work on, on the roots of Kanzuk, um, and uh, they point out that, again, it's part of this deeper, older historia, uh, vision of, of a kind of an imperial federation. Um, and while it has attracted some support among conservative politicians in Australia and Canada and New Zealand, um, its main impetus has really come from, from British campaigners for, for Brexit. Now, the Anglosphere and Kanzuk are ideas that have circulated on the fringes of British politics for in the decade, did circulate in the fringes in the decades after uh, the end of empire. Uh, but the Brexit uh, referendum clearly has brought it into greater prominence and its proponents have argued that a closer association either in terms of the Anglosphere or Kanzuk with these sort of ethnic cousins uh, would be an association based on free trade, free migration, mutual defense, shared ethnic identity and so on. It's telling however also I think we, we, we consider, you know, I sort of suggested the parts of the United Kingdom that are left out of this story. Uh, there are parts of the old uh, Commonwealth that are left out of this story too, the old uh, white dominions. Uh, there's no mention of Ireland, uh, no, not surprisingly because it favors the EU. Also no mention of South Africa, right? Uh, both are conspicuously absent from, from all of this contemporary discussion of these two uh, visions. Um, and in the case of South Africa, because it's no longer really seen as a white man's country. Um, Bell points out that the Kanzuk project is premised on, quote, the dominant racialized conception of empire, insisting on the distinctiveness and superiority of the core white settler colonies, unquote. So, race. The other dimension of the empire an extremely important dimension, in fact, in territorial and demographic terms, certainly the most important part of the empire in the 19th and 20th century, consisted of those uh, colonial dependencies where the British uh, ruled autocratically over millions of Africans, Asians, and other dark-skinned uh, peoples. And this is the part of the empire that, that, that Kipling uh, refers to in his poem, The White Man's Burden. Now, Brexiters have given remarkably little attention to this part of the empire in, in their discussion, but when they do, um, I think the rhetoric is pretty interesting and revealing, and of course the, the classic example is Boris Johnson. Uh, in his previous career as, as journalist, he responded uh, to Tony Blair's comment that British colonialism in Africa was, quote, a, a blot on our conscience by pugnaciously proclaiming instead 
that the continent of Africa may be a blot, but it is not a blot upon our conscience. The problem is not that we were once in charge, but that we were, are not in charge any longer. And he goes on to insist that the best fate for Africa would be if the old colonial powers scrambled once again in their direction. He's only slightly more, was only slightly more dip diplomatic during his career in the Foreign Office, or his tenure in the Foreign Office. In one widely reported and provocative incident, he began reciting Kipling's poem Mandalay in a Buddhist temple in Myanmar. And the British ambassador managed to stop him before he got to the lines, Bloomin' idol made a, 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 a mud, what they call the great god Bud. Now, Theresa May has never shown similarly sort of provocative, hostile rhetoric or expressed that kind of rhetoric towards these places and peoples. But it's also, I think, worth remembering uh, what caused her early effort to demonstrate the pro uh, to it's worth remembering one of her earliest efforts to demonstrate uh, how Brexit could succeed and the failure of that effort, and that was her trip to India, where she tried to negotiate a trade deal, and by all evidence, the, the negotiations broke down simply because of her refusal to increase the quota of students and other Indians who might be granted entry into uh, the United Kingdom. So how do we explain this affinity that so many uh, leaders of the Brexit cause have shown for these imperial or quasi-imperial ideas, associations, and projects. Again, I'm going to quote Philip Murphy. I agree with him that, as he puts it, it's a lazy assumption to simply attribute it to nostalgia for the imperial past. Uh, I think it needs to be understood, at least in part, and I'm coming at this from an American perspective, and as you'll see, I'm going to sort of make parallels to the American context. I think it needs to be understood, at least in part, uh, as an expression of anxiety about recent demographic changes in British society, and really as a calculated political response to the implications posed by those changes, especially by certain groups that are in power, currently in power. Now, one of the most striking developments over the past few decades has been the growing um, number, visibility, and influence of people of color in Britain. Uh, the 2011 census revealed that whites were now a minority in London, uh, and that in Britain as a whole, people of African, Caribbean, and Asian ancestry comprise 10% of the population. And their presence has given rise to um, the growth of, of advocacy for multicultural policies and increasingly powerful critiques of Britain's imperial past. Uh, and on this latter point, it's worth noting that all three of the prime ministers who preceded Theresa May felt the need to issue official policies, official apologies, about aspects of that past. Uh, Tony Blair for Britain's role in the slave trade and the Irish famine, uh, Gordon Brown for the Dominion uh, child uh, migrant scandal, and David Cameron for the Bloody Sunday Massacre in Northern Ireland and the Amritsar Massacre in India. So this is simply one of the ways in which memory of empire has actually been highly contested, I think, in Britain in the last decade or two, and that that has been a, a kind of generative force for, for this reaction. For those uh, 
Britons who do feel a pride in Britain's imperial past or its past as a global power and who are unnerved by the kinds of social changes that they observe in their communities and in the nation as a whole. The Brexiters' argument about taking their country back and restoring it to its previous uh, greatness I think has obvious appeal. So when the Brexiters evoke imperial images and ideas, they're engaged in a political appeal to these sentiments and the social concerns that undergird them. And I doubt that they really have any sort of delusional conviction that they can actually recreate Empire 2.0, right? Or that they can create Empire 2.0. They're using the imperial past as a counterpoint to the problems that their supporters see around them and as a placeholder uh, for the aspirations they have for Britain. As others have noted, and as I would note or argue, there are parallels between the, po uh, the politics of the Brexiteers and the politics of Donald Trump. Both play on resentments about racial diversity and both appeal to an idealized past. For Trump, of course, it's make America great again. Uh, and for the Brexiteers, it's this rhetoric about uh, an imperial past. And it's no surprise, it seems to me, that people like Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage have been uh, vocal uh, supporters of, of, of Trump. So whatever the fate of the Brexit agreement, and uh, God knows, right? I don't know what's going to happen. Um, it's one of the things that seems to me that's happened just in the past, insofar as I track this, and I'd be interested in your, your perceptions, is that this, uh, that the tide may have turned against the, the more imperially minded Brexiteers, those grandiose claims uh, about the Anglosphere or Kanzok being uh, a, an alternative to the EU seem to have uh, sort of gone up in smoke. Um, the, Claims of great trade deals with the, the Commonwealth appear to have disappeared. Um, and certainly the, the, the broader demographic trajectory of British society itself is, is moving in a very different direction. So um, I'm, I'm not in the game of, of, of predicting, but I, I certainly am struck by the way in which empire seems to sort of have this, have had this uh, resonance in, in life over the past uh, decade or so. Thank you.